All right, good afternoon. Um, thanks to all of you for coming. Um, I am Meg Rithmeyer. I'm the F. Warren McFarland Associate Professor at the Business School. I'm a specialist on China. And I run the China Economy Seminar, which meets kind of intermittently and unpredictably. So please um, keep an eye on the Fairbank Center events listserv um, if you want more events like this. Um, we are incredibly unfortunate uh, to be in the middle of a trade war with China, but we are fortunate to have Craig Allen here um, to talk to us about it. Um, this is a really great opportunity um, to start the year off with um, a great discussion of something that's incredibly complex and fraught. Um, and it's a real pleasure to have Craig here today. Um, so Craig is the current president of the U.S.-China Business Council, which has over 45 years of history um, in working with China. It's a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution or um, group that represents U.S. companies um, doing business with China. But before Craig um, took this position in 2018, he's had a long and distinguished career um, as a diplomat um, and a member of a number of different administrations. He's worked um, in the Department of Commerce in various um, positions, including most recently um, as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for China. He's been, um, uh, he served a long time at the American Institute in Taiwan, in Taipei, um, as a diplomat, as well as um, for, several, um, for several years as the ambassador to Brunei. Um, so we probably won't hear a lot about Brunei today, but certainly um, we will hear a lot about China. So um, Craig is a agreed to speak for about um, 45 minutes or as long as he wants to go, and then we will have time for question and answer. The event um, says it will go until 6.30. Just as you know, we will stop before 6.30. Two hours is a long time, so we'll stop around 6 o'clock, um, but hopefully there'll be plenty of time for questions and discussion. And so with that, I thank Craig for joining us today. Thank Craig, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well what a great honor to be here. I'm so excited. Before I start, I'd just like to dedicate this to all those who died uh, 18 years ago. Uh, it was a horrible day that I'm sure we all remember. And uh, lest we forget, uh, let me dedicate these remarks and, and this uh, uh, afternoon uh, to everyone uh, who died. So it's a great honor to be here. I want to thank everyone. Uh, Dante, thank you. Uh, Meg, thank you very much. Um, I spend um, uh, every day on really the nitty-gritty of the trade negotiations uh, and uh I'm not going to really focus on that here and now, um, but I'm happy to address any questions about the trade negotiations uh, in the Q&A period. Uh, but rather, what I thought I'd do is broaden the aperture a little bit, um, actually a lot, uh, and talk more about some of the structural reasons uh, that we are where we are, uh, which is a pretty bad place. Um, and um, look at it for a little bit from a structural perspective, a little bit from a historic perspective, uh, and then kind of walk through some of the, uh, I will argue, conflicting uh, interests that the US uh, faces uh, with uh, China. Um, and, um, so, and what I will do over the course of the next 30 minutes or so uh, is uh, walk through uh, the economic issues that we have uh, using the metaphor of a few American cities. And in Washington, D.C., uh, we talk about national security. And so I'm going to start out there because you can't really... Um, understand where we are on the trade side or much less the technology side without that. Uh, in New York City, it's all about finance. Uh, and their views are very different uh, for good reasons. 
uh, in Chicago, it's about manufacturing and agriculture. So I'll speak a, a little bit about the trade war in, in, in that context. Um, uh, in Silicon Valley, or perhaps Boston, uh, it's about tech. Uh, and tech is uh, probably the most important long-term part of the relationship. So I'll spend quite a bit of time there. And then we'll end our excursion in Houston. We should talk about energy uh, as well as uh, Chinese investment in the US. Um, so with your indulgence, uh, that's what uh, I'd like to do today. Um, so let me start out by just noting just how incredibly long uh, and complex uh, the U.S.-China trade relationship uh, is. And I will argue that, you know, since before our country was founded, founded the U.S.-China trade relationship was a, a big issue uh, that we face. So you will recall in 1773, the Boston Tea Party was about tea from Fujian. And while the Treasury will tell you that was a tax issue, not a trade issue, but in fact, it was both a trade uh, and a tax uh, issue. And uh, not long after that, uh, with the dec Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson put in the latter part of the, 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 the indictment against King George, uh, a couple of things that read pretty well today, actually, uh, uh, indicting King George uh, for cutting, uh, quote, uh, cutting off trade with all parts of the world, and secondly, imposing tariffs without our consent. And I think that that's interesting. He was referring not only to China, but he was referring to tea and China as well. And so from the very beginning, trade with China has been a controversial part of our history. Uh, not a, long after independence, uh, uh, Americans, uh, Anglo-Saxons for the most part, started settling in California, Oregon, and Washington State. Not for gold, we didn't know that that was there, but rather to, because we had caught all the beaver and, and, and the fur uh, in the eastern and the middle part of the United States, and we needed new fur for, to, to, to export to China so that we could uh, buy more of that uh, tea. So it was because of China that in the first instance that we settled California, Oregon, and Washington. A few years later, Americans moved to Hawaii uh, as missionaries, but they soon found uh, that chopping down the sandalwood tree and exporting that to China for incense could make you boatloads of money. And so we settled uh, Hawaii, and uh, it became ultimately an American um, uh, uh, annex to the United States, largely because of uh, China. Uh, so China has been an important part of our conversation forever, and forever probably it will be thus. Um, today, um, it is uh, very much the case. The U.S. today has a $20.5 trillion economy, equal to about 24% uh, of GDP, and we're growing at about 2% of GDP. China's uh, 
probably about a $14 trillion economy um, at 16% of GDP, but growing at 6%. So you could do the math, and we could speculate when China, on a, uh, a nominal basis, exchange rate basis, will overtake uh, the United States. But together, we're about 40% of global GDP. Um, but... Um, when we look at the U.S. and China, I think we have to be just coldly realistic and note that both countries are in transition. Uh, so in 2016, America elected a proud economic protectionist, anti-globalist, and anti-elite leader who promised to put America first. And President Trump was good to his word. Uh, he withdrew from TPP, Paris, INF, the JCPOA, uh, without putting other arrangements into place. And his clear preference uh, for ad hoc and bilateral uh, arrangements uh, rather than global institutional arrangements is having a deep effect uh, on our country and on U.S.-China relations. Uh, currently, there is much less focus on a strategy, law, ethics, long-term implications of, on the economic architecture. And in short, policy is less important. For a policy wonk like me, that's not a good thing, by the way, but uh, that, uh, that is where we are. And in place of that, uh, there is a much greater focus on tactical room to maneuver and immediate transactions. So in short, policy is out and politics and power are the coin of the realm. So China's is also in transition. Uh, Xi Jinping, has decisively restructured China from Deng Xiaoping's model. And for those who speak uh, Chinese, Taoguan uh, Yanghui, Deng Xiaoping's motto uh, to uh, buy, uh, hide your light and bide your time is long past. And China's current foreign policy is much more aggressive and expansionist and active. Um, uh, President Xi uh, believes that a strong country needs a strong party, which needs a strong leader. And he is uh, providing uh, that leadership. And on the international realm, uh, uh, the Belt and Road uh, is an incredibly ambitious uh, project. And it's a perfect symbol of China's resurgence and integration into the global economy. Um, and I would argue China's uh, eminent uh, free trade agreements uh, with uh, Europe, uh, with RCEP, which is ASEAN plus six, Japan and Korea are excellent examples of robust uh, globalism and uh, economic integration in the global economy. Uh, China's neighbors are certainly impressed, uh, but also concerned about China's assertiveness. So in summary, while the United States has embraced uh, economic, uh, has embraced nationalism and bipartisan approach to foreign policy, the Chinese have equally embraced nationalism, uh, but uh, also a robust globalism. So across uh, 
the world and in all sectors, we see the Chinese taking a leadership role in global economic institutions. And that is a very interesting and an important phenomenon to watch. But China's uh, uh, foreign policies are in tension uh, with uh, domestic policies. On the domestic side, I think all of our Chinese uh, friends will agree uh, that the, if you will, the zeitgeist of today is Guo Jin or the country advances and civil society retreats. Uh, China uh, is diverging from global norms internally. And I think uh, the economy of China, which is so more and more and more dominated by the, the party, um, is uh, diverging from WTO norms as well. Uh, no other country in the world has a party that is playing the role that the Communist Party of China is playing internally within uh, China. And uh, the human rights situation, I think, is deteriorating. There are many signals, the symbols of the divergence of China uh, from global norms rather than the convergence of China. This is not a controversial argument in China, by the way. I'm, I have spoken publicly in China uh, about the divergence of the Chinese economy uh, in particular, and most Chinese economists will agree with uh, that statement. So to frame the bilateral relationship, I think it's okay to ask uh, the question whether Donald Trump's make, Making America Great Again uh, program is compatible with Xi Jinping's Zhonghua uh, Fuxin, or the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. And I think that I would have to answer no, that they are not compatible. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine uh, a world stability in a world where the leading status quo power is withdrawing into a confrontational, nationalistic, bipartisan, uh, by, um, um, uh, by, bipartisan orientation, and the rising power is engaged in an equally confrontational, nationalistic uh, globalism. So we, this is a difficult situation. Um, so it might be useful to take a step back and reflect on the words of Lord Palmerston that uh, countries have no eternal allies, no perpetual enemies, are only our interests are eternal and uh, perpetual. Now, I'm going to put aside for a minute uh, the definition of eternal and perpetual interests. I think that we could have a wonderful debate on that subject. What is, how do you define our national interest? And different people will have very different views uh, on that subject. Uh, and it's an important subject, but I'm going to put that aside and really focus on our economic uh, interests here. Uh, and at the risk of uh, uh, oversimplifying, um, I think that uh, in the case of China, America's economic interests are not only enormous, but they are 
obviously very messy uh, and uh, sometimes contradictory. Uh, and this will force us into a very difficult process of setting priorities and uh, setting uh, values. Do we value um, uh, the global trading order more than uh, national security? Uh, do we value free trade, uh, uh, rule of law? Uh, there are conflicts there uh, that have arisen as a result of China's rise, and we're going to have to grapple uh, with uh, some of those problems. So let me um, start on my little tour, uh, and with apologies to Charles Dickens, this is a tale of five cities. Uh, Washington, Silicon Valley, uh, could be Boston, but I don't know Boston, so I'll call Silicon Valley. Uh, New York, Chicago, and Houston. So let me talk about uh, Washington, and that's really a metaphor for our national security interests. From a Washington perspective, um, the security agencies have all read and, or misread uh, the great Graham Allison's Theodicy's trap and have derived the conclusion uh, that a conflict with China is almost inevitable. And they ask, what more do you need to know? So in the national security strategy of 2017, the Trump administration uh, very explicitly transitioned the United States from a focus on terrorism as our primary threat uh, to great power competition. And in that 2017 version of the document, it was always Russia and China, Russia and China, as, as if they were one country. And uh, that has changed. In the 2018 version, it's better. Uh, but China is put as much the, the greatest long-term strategic tr threat and Russia more of a short-term uh, threat. Um, and this has been articulated across the administration uh, in many different forms and ways. So let me just note a couple of the things that have been said. FBI Director Christopher Wray said that China is, quote, an all-of-society threat, unquote, that requires a, quote, all-of-society response, end of quote. Former State Department Policy Planning Director Chiron Skinner um, said that China is a civilizational threat. Um, now, she has left the administration, but her views have not been explicitly repudiated, and I regret that. In 2018, uh, Vice President Pence gave the authoritative administrative uh, China policy speech, which reads as a 15-count indictment uh, against China. So I hope that you won't feel uh, that I'm cynical if I say uh, or note that many people within the Washington security establishment are benefiting uh, per personally and professionally uh, from the uh, administration's emphasis on the security challenges that Washington presents. And it has been argued that uh, there is a danger that some of these threats are being exaggerated. And if that were a case, would not that uh, be bad for our national security? We want to be realistic. We want to be cold. We want to measure and not exaggerate or uh, expand upon unnecessarily. But there are a lot of budgets and careers at stake. And further, Congress 
is in basic bipartisan agreement uh, with the security agencies that China is our major long-term security challenge, and it is generously funding any program that may reduce our exposure to China. And... Um, uh, similarly, the obverse of that is that the Congress is defunding any program that um, uh, coordinates or uh, encourages co uh, cooperation with China. So, uh, of course, the Chinese have given us a lot of material to build a national security case. On the international side, let me just risk um, uh, South China Sea, Belt and Road uh, Initiative, challenges with global institutions, Iran, uh, and bids for our traditional allies in Europe and Japan. Those who would prefer can focus on ch China's domestic issues, including Hong Kong, and Taiwan, human rights, Xinjiang, Tibet, treatment of Christians, uh, and the rapidly emerging phenomenon of digital Leninism or social credit scoring, um, CCC cameras on every corner. Uh, these are legitimate issues of debate. Uh, our friends in the FBI are rightly concerned about potential US domestic interference. For example, cybersecurity is a hugely important issue. And so far as I could see, cybersecurity penetration and threats are increasing, not decreasing. The FBI is convinced, and I think appropriately so, that some Chinese uh, uh, government affiliated groups are coordinated, uh, are in a coordinated and systematic campaign uh, to uh, obtain access to and benefit from uh, academic, scientific, and commercial interests. So I would note that none of the issues that I've just mentioned, difficult issues, all of them difficult uh, issues, and I apologize to our Chinese nationals in the room for bringing up difficult issues, but we must talk about them. But I will argue that none of them are bilateral. None of them. Uh, are, they are all multilateral, um, both on the security side uh, and on uh, the economic side. And I, would, uh, I will argue that the United States would benefit greatly from a coordinated, effective multilateral response rather than using the bilateral levers that we are exclusively relying on now. So with this scary backdrop in Washington, let's turn our attention to Silicon Valley or to high tech. Um, and the most important data point to keep in mind on China's high tech is that in 2019 and every year after now, um, China will graduate 1.8 million STEM uh, students. The United States will graduate about 650,000, a third of whom are foreigners. And... Uh, China uh, has a lot of engineers, and they're good engineers. Uh, uh, we mustn't be complacent and think that the quality uh, on our side is better. There's no empirical evidence for that whatsoever. American companies and university employ lots of Chinese STEM uh, workers now, and that will remain the case uh, for the foreseeable future. And indeed, uh, collaboration between the United States and China in the two technology se sectors has been enormously beneficial uh, and produced a cornucopia of goods. Probably every single person has one in your pocket uh, and many more at home uh, that have benefited the entire world, benefited everybody, but disproportionately benefited America and benefited China. So you cannot imagine Silicon Valley without China. 
And you cannot imagine China without Silicon Valley. Uh, and until the recent past, Chinese and technology sectors, uh, China's and America's technology sectors have been intertwined, uh, integrated, synergistic, and interdependent. And that is far too much so from the national security hawk's point of view. They, are, they look at that as a negative, not as a positive. So um, nonetheless, we should be properly impressed uh, at how well China's private technology sector has emerged onto the world stage. Indeed, by some indices in China, uh, China is uh, among the most innovative countries on earth. And that is true certainly for fifth generation telephony, payments, artificial intelligence, new energy vehicles, high speed rail, drones, pharma, genetics, renewable energy, and I could go on. I argue in Silicon Valley that Shenzhen, be careful of Shenzhen. Shenzhen could eat Silicon Valley's lunch, and that is absolutely true. Uh, this is a uh, this is a very, there are very important tectonic shifts uh, that are underway. Um, so while China may not be at the qualitative bleeding edge of technology, uh, as Stalin uh, reportedly said, yes, sometimes quantity has a quality all of its own. And I think Stalin was right about that. Quantity uh, gives uh, China some advantages that are quite unique. Now, in the United States, we're rightly proud of our technological and innovative uh, creativity. And we're rightly concerned uh, that an ideological and potentially uh, strategic rival is surging ahead in so many areas. So let me, uh, to illustrate all the problems associated with this, talk a little bit uh, through about why Huawei. Huawei is a prism through which we could view many of these concerns. So from an individual, kind of a personal perspective, the person of the Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou, currently uh, under indictment in Vancouver, is a perfect symbol, uh, symbolic representation of US-China technology uh, friction. Just as Joan of Arc was a representation of medieval France, Meng Wanzhou uh, might claim that title in, uh, in China. But let us also uh, think about the three Canadian hostages in prison uh, in China associated with the Huawei case. Let us not forget them. Uh, let's, from a legal perspective, it is entirely possible that Huawei broke US law or even multiple US laws without ever violating a Chinese law. That is absolutely possible. Um, so the legal issues, and Mark has done some beautiful work on this. Thank you very much, educated me. Um, uh, from an industrial policy perspective, the case is very, very interesting. Um, I have followed Huawei for about 25 years, and it's a special company. They are given lots of special uh, arrangements by the Chinese government, the Chinese military, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been true since Zhu Rongji publicly criticized them uh, in the early 2000s, saying that they had to be more transparent. So from an industrial policy perspective, uh, it's an icon 
uh, and a proud icon for many uh, Chinese, uh, for many Chinese people. But it's an unusual case. I think most people will agree. Huawei, from a corporate governance perspective, is kind of off the charts weird. Um, the militaristic ethos of Huawei is very odd, and what the Chinese call the wolf culture within Huawei. And indeed, if you read the indictment uh, against Huawei, you'll note that there are memos giving um, uh, employees incentives to steal intellectual property right for the good of the company. It's in writing. Uh, it's, it's, so uh, if you don't believe me, look at the indictment. So from a communications technology perspective, uh, I understand uh, that currently today, uh, Chinese companies, but especially Huawei, own up to 36% of the patent pool for 5G telephony. 36% of the patent pool for 5G telephony, up from 0% probably for 2G and about 4 or 5% for 3G. So what about 6G telephony? Uh, is there a quota for 60% Chinese IPR? I don't know. But I think it gives us all a cause, uh, uh, good reason to pause. From a global uh, technology innovation ecosystem perspective, does Huawei's success in 5G telephony indicate that that is China, the Chinese government is also committed to technological dominance in all of the other industries mentioned in the Made in China 2025 uh, list? And I won't go through them here, but I'm happy to talk about them. And if so, what does that mean about overcapacity uh, in those industries and price destruction uh, in those industries, such as what we have seen in telecommunications, steel, solar panels, wind, et cetera, et cetera. And from a national security or an espionage perspective, is it a good, is it a reasonable argument to say that if we have uh, Huawei telephony, then espionage becomes easier? Is it easier for, the, to, for a Chinese to hack into a Huawei piece of equipment or a Nokia piece of equipment? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it's about the same, but it's hard to argue that uh, a Huawei is more safe than Nokia. Um, so does it make us more vulnerable to hacking from China? I don't know. Um, but all of these are important uh, questions, and there are perhaps no easy answers. But let me underline uh, one point. Um, when uh, the Department of Commerce put Huawei on the entities list, stopping American suppliers from supplying to them, that was a Sputnik moment for the Chinese. The Chinese at that moment, right there and then, realized that they could not rely on American companies, American technologies, and they started uh, uh, looking at American companies as a supplier of last resort, trying to spec out, if you will, American products. If Huawei, <laughs> if uh, uh, Huawei could be put on the entities list, any company could be put on the entities list. And so it was a very important moment that I uh, fear will go down in history. So the, di the dialogue uh, between technology and national, national security is effectively intermediated uh, in the United States 
through the expanded use of export controls and, in, um, uh, and investment controls. Now, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, export controls. And I know that this is the most boring subject in the world, but it's very, very important. And uh, so please indulge me for a couple minutes to talk about our export control and investment control policy. Uh, it's super important, not only for the bilateral uh, uh, relationship, but because it will inform the overall uh, global technology innovation ecosystem. Um, and there's been very little public debate in the United States on these issues, and I think that that is regrettable. So export controls have traditionally been used to protect American industrial secrets with special reference for dual-use technology. That is their historic role. And all the graybeards in, in, who remember the good old days of the Cold War will remember COCOM. They were all multilateral controls. Well, the new brand of export controls are different. Uh, they are mostly unilateral, and they're being used for much more broad purposes. And the case of Huawei is interesting from this perspective. But let me choose rather to say a couple words about uh, another case, Fujian Jinhua, uh, which is a semiconductor firm uh, based in Fujian, and it, because it illustrates the point better. Fujian Jinhua uh, is trying to become a national champion for memory. Uh, chips. And um, they were caught red-handed with a lot of uh, stolen intellectual property rights and a large campaign to become the world's fourth largest, uh, fourth supplier of memory chips. Uh, currently, there are only three suppliers in the world. <clears throat> but rather than using the intellectual property right route, this was an intellectual property right violation, the U.S. put Fujian Jinhua on the export controls entities list, prohibiting American suppliers from dealing with them, shutting the company down for the most part. Now, the Europeans and the Japanese were in the door the next day offering to sell them products, but for the most part, I believe that the company is shut down. On a closely related subject of uh, uh, investment screening uh, and CFIUS, there have been a number of U.S.-China joint, uh, joint ventures that have been ex post facto disallowed, um, forcing divestment uh, from uh, these uh, corpor corporations. And Chinese investment, as a result, has fallen off of a cliff, drop dropping 80% uh, 2018 over 2017. And I really regret that, uh, particularly for uh, unemployed Americans in, in disadvantaged uh, regions. So the next step on export controls is very, very important. And I would encourage everybody to be involved in this. Uh, just good public policy for citizens to be involved. But under the uh, Defense Reauthorization Act of 2017, the Department of Commerce is legally obligated uh, to define the terms, quote unquote, emerging technologies and, quote unquote, foundational technologies, and suggest appropriate uh, export controls that would protect America's industrial secrets. So the critical question is how broad will these control uh, these definitions be? There are some people who are advocating, let's make it broad. That'll force decoupling across a whole range of industries. And others who are saying, no, 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 let's just keep this really narrow to protect uh, collaboration. Um, 
And I, let me give you an example. Um, I don't think anybody would disagree that bio-warfare uh, bacteria should be controlled very carefully. But uh, biotechnology as an industry would be inappropriate, in my view, uh, for export uh, controls. One thing I would uh, hasten to underline is that uh, these definitions will also lead to controls, export controls, on information about those technologies. So data, uh, teaching, uh, research and development, supply arrangements, sales arrangements with Chinese will all be caught up uh, in this process, especially if the definitions are very broad, encompassing large parts of industry. And so we're waiting to see what the Department of Commerce will do uh, on that. But it affects universities very directly, and it affects um, companies also. Um, and uh, I th suspect that in the case of Harvard, uh, compliance costs to ensure that you are in compliance with all appropriate American law uh, and also protecting your academic freedom is going to become more difficult as this uh, progresses. Um, and for companies, attracting uh, talent and retaining talent while maintaining uh, appropriate legal controls is also going to become more difficult. Um, and um, so I would argue that we've already paid a high price for expanded export controls. Uh, but if these definitions are broad, that price might become much higher. And uh, if it is the case, because these are unilateral controls, the, the Europeans and the Japanese simply replace us, perhaps the Koreans or the Israelis, um, then we have, we really improved our uh, security. So before closing on this subject, let me just say a couple words about China's policies uh, ab about technology and the industries of the future, because there are many reasons to be concerned. Made in China 2025 uh, was an industrial policy blueprint uh, that in my view violated many chapters of the WTO. And I've argued that case uh, publicly many times in China and it's gone away. Uh, but the policies are still intact. Publicly, it's gone away, but many of the policies are still there. Um, so while we don't have uh, Made in China 2025, we do have uh, items that are especially problematic. Uh, the use of hackers I've already mentioned, uh, China's uh, aggressive and non-transparent use of talent attraction schemes, such as uh, the 1000 Talents campaign, uh, which deliberately blurs ethical lines. And it's going to change academia. It's going to change how companies uh, uh, interact. Um, it, it, we're already seeing that. The Chinese intelligence law is problematic. It requires Chinese citizen to, citizens to support China's intelligence agencies. I think that that's very unfortunate. And China's company law, which gives the party privileges uh, in every corporation, different privileges for different corporations, is very poorly thought out. Finally, let me just say a couple words about social credit scoring, because many of my companies are really worried about social credit scoring. Uh, in short, uh, China is engaged in a massive experiment in social credit scoring system. It's mostly local right now, but it's rolling up to the national level. Um, 
And uh, I think that every company, a foreign company in China, is very worried about this um, because there's no reason to believe that foreigners will be treated equally um, uh, compared to state-owned enterprises, which will probably do very well, and private Chinese companies, which will probably do very well, particularly if they support the party. Um, and so I think that um, companies, uh, foreign companies, have good reason to be concerned about this kind of form of a new modern digital Leninism, which is not fair, or not WTO consistent and not fair to outsiders who don't share ideological views. Um, equally, Foreigners are very concerned about MOFCOMS or the Ministry of Commerce's entities list, which is being created as we speak uh, in a direct response to Huawei's uh, actions. And I see no reason to believe that we'll, it will be used in a fair or transparent manner. Um, so many companies are concerned about being a hostage to a situation that they cannot control. Let me conclude this section on technology and then rush really uh, quickly uh, through um, uh, uh, the, the tariffs um, and, and uh, trade war. Um, so... Um, also, before, before that, I have to say that within the WTO, a lot of the wording on technology is not helpful. The WTO is silent on digital economy. It's silent on cross-border data flows. It says nothing uh, about many of the, uh, on PII, personal private uh, information. And so um, it is uh, difficult. Uh, to use the WTO as a mechanism to adjudicate uh, these uh, disputes. But I will argue uh, that the, the trade war is bogus. The trade, trade war is based on faulty economics. But the technology war is real. Um, and um, we are stuck without being able to answer three difficult questions. Now, I understand that there are a lot of part, smart people at Harvard. So if you're able to answer these questions, uh, you will deserve uh, the approbation uh, of your countrymen. But let me give you three really difficult questions. What are the rules of the road for U.S.-China technology cooperation? What are the rules of the road for U.S.-China technology competition? But the most important question and difficult question is, how do you enforce those rules? We don't have rules to be enforced right now. So, uh, but the answer to those questions will, be, will determine whether we have one internet or two, whether we have one blockchain or two, and whether we have one digital, uh, global uh, innovation ecosystem or, or two. So let me, let's, let's just walk quickly through um, uh, Chicago, uh, New York, Chicago, and Houston. Um, uh, in New York, um, the feeling is very difficult, different from uh, Washington, which is very 
security oriented. And Silicon Valley, which is very worried about the future of China US technology. In New York, everything is great. Um, <laughs> the financial sector uh, is focused on the bilateral economic fundamentals, and they like what they see. Um, this is easy to understand. The US financial sector is focused on um, uh, 6% uh, growth uh, in China. China's middle class of 300 million. Uh, China will produce as much as 33% of global growth over the next uh, 10 years. What more do you need to know? This is a, the greatest market on earth. And uh, the good, uh, the gentle people of Wall Street are happy to help the Chinese uh, take their finances global and, and, and to work uh, to, uh, to improve the allocation of capital in China. Um, and indeed, uh, they are doing so quite effectively. Recently, despite the trade frictions, uh, the Chinese have uh, had some serious openings in the financial sector, uh, credit cards, credit ratings, Standard & Poor, uh, uh, insurance, and in banking. So I'll recall uh, that um, Wall Street is happy to take China tech firms global. There are some $1.2 trillion of investments um, uh, in 156 uh, Chinese companies listed on the NASDAQ. It's a remarkable figure. And uh, most of that is American money. And Americans, many Americans have gotten rich off of that. It's a, it's a great story. So New York is very bullish. And they're assured uh, that, uh, that, uh, that the political nonsense that they see going on and they read about is not going to get in their economic way. So let's scurry over to Chicago and talk a little bit about agriculture and manufacturing. Agriculture, American agriculture is predicated on the fact that America produces far too many calories for us to eat. Okay, we, we are reliant on the export market for about a third of what we grow. And therefore, um, uh, uh, we are in trouble uh, when our exports are constrained as they currently are. And soybean prices and corn prices are very low, and that is leading to bankruptcies. Uh, across uh, many of the politically uh, important states. Now, foreign countries, if they feel that they've been aggrieved and uh, under the WTO, are reacting as you would expect. Uh, they're hitting America where it's politically sensitive, and that is in the agricultural markets. So many in the farming community are wondering, well, is this just a storm or is this just a short-term hit on prices or is it long-term? Well, I think those of us who remember 1972 and the, uh, the soybean embargo to Japan, remember how Japan reacted to that. Uh, Professor Vogel, I think, knows this very, very well uh, by investing in men, in growing facilities in Brazil. And that's exactly what the Chinese are doing. So is this short-term or long-term? And the answer, is this a storm or is it climate change? And the answer is yes, it's both, uh, I regret to say. So in manufacturing, the tariffs 
um, have uh, been very deleterious to American manufacturing. And you could see that in the figures. Uh, manufacturing in America is in a technical recession. Uh, manufacturing has been down two quarters uh, in a roll, in a row. So some American companies producing in, uh, produce in China for the Chinese market, they're doing just fine, no problems. Some American companies are producing in China for other markets, exporting to Japan or Korea or wh whatever. They're doing just fine too. But anybody reliant on trade is doing poorly. And unfortunately, uh, for small, medium-sized companies, it's very difficult uh, to mitigate uh, that, uh, that risk. Um, so the tariffs have done a great deal of harm. In uh, a recent survey about two weeks ago by the Brunswick Group um, uh, of Chinese and American consumers, some 56% of Chinese consumers who answered the survey said that they were trying to avoid American products. Now let's just pause and think 56% of 1.4 billion people. That's 11% of the globe's population who is actively trying to avoid American products. Now, I don't know that they would know that McDonald's is an American product. They might not recognize that, uh, but um, it is not a good sign anyway. So uh, a final stop uh, in Houston. Um, the United States uh, would, uh, we would love to sell uh, oil and gas and coal, more of, uh, fossil fuels uh, to China. And we have plenty to sell and there's a lot of contracts out there that are potentially doable uh, with uh, uh, China. But uh, as in a manner very similar to agriculture, we've been priced out of the market uh, due to uh, the counter uh, tariffs. And again, is this short-term or long-term? Only time will tell. Uh, but Houston is a pretty unromantic place. Uh, I hope nobody's from Texas. Uh, but it's, they're, they're, they're not romantic about this. Oil and gas and coal are fungible products. They could sell them anywhere in the world. But to be priced out of the world's largest and rapidly growing fossil fuel market, not a good thing. The other thing that Texas, and indeed I would argue 50 governors, and thousands of American mayors are very concerned about is the fall off on, of Chinese investment into the United States. An 80% drop is very meaningful if you're in Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, uh, Nevada, uh, or many other places. So uh, let me uh, just say a couple words of uh, wrap up. Um, uh, was uh, Lord Palmerston uh, helpful to us when he said that countries uh, have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies, only interests? Well, I'll argue that our interests are very diverse, uh, so much so that oftentimes our interests contradict each other. So I'm not sure uh, we're able to agree on our national our what is in our national interest enough to be able to 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 focus uh, on uh, Lord Palmerston's very good uh, advice. America is a very, very diverse country. Our interests are diverse. And, uh, and our, our challenges with China are comprehensive. They are across technology, economy, ideology, policy, and diplomacy. China is a competitor and will likely remain so 
for the rest of our lifetimes. And the Chinese look at us like that uh, uh, very much. Yes, we have lots of interests, but those interests are contradictory, at least when it comes uh, to China. So we have to prioritize. What are our interests? Are we willing to compromise the rule of law to protect our national security from longer-term threats? Are we willing to sacrifice the global innovation system to protect our intellectual property rights? Do we really want to upend the WTO because China was not fully meeting its commitments and on the grounds, uh, on the grounds that it's a, a developing economy? Um, uh, on the domestic front, how, how do we maintain academic uh, freedom and uh, and also protect our industrial secrets. So let me conclude with just a couple of thoughts, uh, prescriptions, if you will, um, that um, uh, it does us no good uh, to look at China as we want it to be, to have a romantic view of China. Forget it. Let's deal with the China as it is. Not exaggerate, just to be very clear-eyed about it. This is not the China that we want, but uh, it's a China that we must uh, deal with. Um, and, but I will argue that the unilateral confrontational approach is not an effective way to deal with our issues. It's just not going to get the job done. Uh, first, all of our problems, as I noted earlier, are multilateral in nature. Second, um, uh, if we approach these issues on a bilateral basis, uh, American companies, workers, farmers, and ranchers, are, and, and consumers ultimately, are just going to pay the price. And indeed, the Europeans and our the Japanese and our competitors are going to benefit uh, from our unilateral approach. It hurts us on the global stage. Third, what the goal should be is the convergence of, by China to global norms. And I would argue that that is absolutely in China's interest as well. And in truth, carrots as well as sticks are an appropriate way to approach this. Fourth, the WTO and other multilater uh, multilateral institutions must be a part of the solution. Yes, the WTO must be reformed and updated. Yes, they must be modernized uh, and brought into the digital world to deal with and, and be able to deal with SOEs and subsidies more effectively. And yes, we have to do this with our Europeans and allies, uh, uh, but in coordination with uh, the Chinese. And fifth, our allies are desperate to work with us uh, if we create the right incentives, but we've done a very poor job of that, and uh, we have not created the right incentives. So in conclusion, a world dominated by power politics, I will argue, is not in America's long-term interest. Rather, a world in which America continues uh, to dominate and, and lead a global institution in, a in um, cooperation and coordination with our friends, partners, and allies, and in accordance to the universal uh, values as espoused in our Declaration of Independence, will create a much more stable, attractive, and sustainable future. Um, while we must 
work with the China that we see rather than uh, the one we want. We will be more successful at coordinating uh, with China uh, if we work uh, in the context of global rules and in close uh, coordination uh, with our allies, friends, and partners around the world who have very similar concerns about China's growing global ambitions. So let us just remember that old adage uh, that in a game with no rules, somebody's going to get hurt. We need rules. Thank you. Thank you, Craig, very much. I'll invite you to sit, certainly, if you would like um, to answer questions. And we have a microphone, um, Mark Grady from the Fairbanks Center. I will take my prerogative as the chair to ask a first question, which is um, perhaps a little lowbrow, um, given <laughs> the, last, um, the last bit of your talk. Um, are we, is it possible to imagine a deal before we get to full coverage with the tariffs? Um, so the um, October 1 is an important date, uh, Chinese National Day, 70 years, uh, 70th anniversary. November 16th is an important date. Uh, the two presidents will meet in uh, Santiago, Chile. Uh, and I think that that's a strike zone. Uh, those uh, six weeks in there is an opportunity. Um, a deal is available. Um, uh, and we need a deal to put a floor on the very rapid downward trajectory of, of relations. And uh, there had been talk of a mini deal of uh, Huawei for agricultural purchases, which is a very odd deal uh, when you look national security and agriculture, very strange. But what we really need to get to as soon as possible is a deal on the 301 issues. Um, intellectual property rights, uh, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, uh, subsidies, forced technology transfer, uh, intellectual property rights. That's where we must go as quickly as possible. And I do believe a deal is uh, out there for the taking because it's in China's interest to do so. Nonetheless, the modalities of the deal are very important. Xi Jinping will not be humiliated period, full stop, end of story. Don, uh, Donald Trump will equally not be humiliated. So what are the modalities of this deal? How do we get this deal together um, in a way that Donald Trump can proudly own it in, in the face of opposition from Nancy Pelosi and Lou Dobbs and, and Chuck Schumer. Uh, and Xi Jinping can own it in the face of opposition from the neo-Maoists and, and the leftists uh, within the party and outside the party who will criticize him. I'm not equating with, uh, I'm not equating neo-Maoists with the Tea Party here, but uh, uh, I, I, I do think that both have politics and both have to own the agreement, and that's hard, but it's possible. And we must get there. And if we don't get there, then we're moving to either 15 or 35% tariffs against all Chinese goods by December 15th, which will have very meaningful implications uh, to the consumer price index, uh, to inflation, uh, which uh, could potentially uh, lead uh, to currency 
uh, pressure as well. Um, it was a very bad move for the president uh, to also include, uh, to nominate China as a currency manipulator. Uh, and uh, so I, I think uh, we need to be very cognizant of the large downside here if we don't come to a deal. A deal is possible. It is in both sides' interests. It is politically difficult, unnecessarily so because it involves the prestige of the two leaders. Thank you. I'll let, I'll let you feel Jerome. Oh, please, please, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, okay. First of all, thank you for a terrific speech. Um, second, just a, a memory. I remember when I was in civics class in seventh or eighth grade, I memorized most of the American Constitution. I seem to remember that it is the role of Congress to set tariffs. <laughs> in the Constitution. I just don't know how that happened. Uh, but I thought just uh, two, two, two actual questions. The Fujian Jinghua example is just a terrifically interesting example. And its resolution so uh, unnuanced. Uh, but I remember a few years ago when SMIC, uh, the, uh, uh, the you know, uh, Semiconductor International Corporation in Shanghai, was sued by TSMC for copyright infringement for intellectual property. And it was settled in an American court. Uh, There's a big fine, and uh, TSMC won, and now actually owns a share of that. Is there, is there no legal recourse rather than a political recourse on the Fujian Jinghua case that ought to have been taken? So that's one, one question. And the second, if, could you elaborate a little bit on the thousand talents comment right. that you gave? I mean, when I was, Dean of this realm, uh, I, I enjoyed stealing talent from other universities. Right. Um, and I tried to keep our talent from being stolen. Um, and it's part of the game. You don't, want, you don't want a faculty that nobody else wants. You have to protect them, and you try to bring the best people here, and you don't do it. I said there are some rules of the game, That's absolutely, uh, but not as many as you think. So what is, uh, yeah. what, what is wrong with that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to, to talk about those. Uh, the Fujian Jinhua case is uh, particularly interesting, and it involves a Taiwan company, and it involves uh, property stolen from a single American uh, company, um, uh, mostly by the Taiwan side and shipped over to the, uh, to the Chinese side. Um, now, Fujian Jinhua, there are three... Um, memory makers in the world, uh, two of them Korean and one of them Micron. Uh, and uh, China hates that situation uh, and wants its own domestic champion and is willing to do uh, anything uh, to get that national champion. That is the industrial policy of China. And so there was, uh, and indeed the, the Fujian court uh, has behaved, uh, I think, very poorly uh, on this, uh, protecting uh, Fujian Jinhua from any suit, and indeed suing Micron uh, for infringement. Um, so there is relatively little trust in the Chinese um, 
judicial system, particularly when you're going up against a national champion. Um, and uh, I think uh, every Chinese here would would uh, understand uh, the role of the party in the judicial system uh, and uh, a, a different concept of national interest, which includes industrial advancement, uh, which I don't think we would consider really as a part of our national interest. But the Chinese do. Uh, it's a different definition. Uh, and uh, so that is why it was used. I still regret uh, that it it turned out that way. I would much prefer to have a WTO case on any of these. Uh, but uh, the administration felt that it was the only dependable way to address the real problem of having uh, a purloined information developing into a, uh, uh, a market maker. Um, I don't think that the story is over either, uh, for sure. Uh, so watch this space. On the Thousand Talents campaign, um, I would uh, note uh, two things. And I've discussed this with the Chinese experts uh, in the party a lot. Be more transparent, uh, firstly. And secondly, uh, the Thousand Talents campaign deliberately makes use of uh, ethical uh, ambiguity. Uh, for example, in the scientific realm, um, uh, the sharing of uh, grant proposals that were written to the NIH being distributed in China, uh, the sharing of research that has been given for a peer review, uh, given distributed through China. Now that might not be illegal, but it is unethical. Uh, and it is uh, pretty commonplace. Um, so uh, I agree, uh, talent is a global issue, uh, but I don't think it is too much uh, to ask for ethical and transparent uh, procedures. And it forces Harvard and every other academic and a high-tech institution to tighten up uh, compliance and rules. This is not something that we want to do. But if you're going to get federal money, you're going to have to tighten up. Uh, and it's probably a good thing because these, uh, we, while we encourage collaboration, it is collaboration within ethical guidelines that must be clearly articulated and understood and accepted by both sides. And uh, the gray area should shrink uh, as much as possible. Please, please, uh, please. Thank you for your speech, it's very impressive. Uh, I'm Jen Jun, Associate in the Department of Economics here. My question goes to the WTO. As you mentioned just now, uh, the WTO has been silent about a lot of things which should be reformed and updated. My question is how to reform and update WTO? Right. And is there any possibility that the US would withdraw from the WTO? as it had done from the TPP and the Paris Agreement? Right, uh, so good questions. Uh, I think that um, the, the question of the US withdrawing from the WTO uh, is a good one. Um, and I think that the answer is no, uh, because that would allow any country to charge any tariff 
and we would have no legal recourse. So we're not going to withdraw from the WTO, but we uh, very much want to reform the WTO. So how do you reform the WTO? Uh, and this is where I think that we need to work with the Europeans and the Japanese and, and Koreans, like-minded, uh, very, very closely, and coordinate with uh, the Chinese. But uh, uh, And if nothing else, come up with uh, uh, a, a plurilateral, if not a multilateral. And uh, you know what? That's exactly what we did with TPP. <laughs> so TPP was my baby, and I love my baby very much. Uh, it's a beautiful baby, uh, and uh, I uh, regret uh, that it's uh, been adopted by another household uh, when uh, it right, rightfully belongs in our household. And our Chinese friends were very, very knowledgeable about that. We briefed China on the TPP. We had a bilateral investment treaty that came very close, 90% done. And so this can be done. This absolutely can be done. So I think when you look at digital, TPP is great. Uh, if you look at cross-border data flows, TPP is great. If you look at subsidies, when we negotiated the TPP, always uh, China was in the background, always. Uh, we, not one word of the TPP was negotiated without China as context. What would happen when China joined? And um, uh, so I think that that is my best answer. Uh, that yes, the WTO needs to be reformed, but if one country, if India is gonna stop it, well, we need to go ahead anyway. Uh, uh, and we, uh, I think that the TPP is a wonderful mechanism uh, on which we could uh, proceed. I know that many Americans disagree with me, but uh, it's my baby. I love it. I want to see it uh, return home. Please. Benjamin, as an investor, I probably sit squarely in the camp of the gentle people of Wall Street, and I would ask a question on this perspective. Um, you sounded cautiously optimistic on the chances of striking a deal, uh, potentially with the horizon of six, the 16th of November. Um, according to your knowledge, what is the progress report on the different items on the agenda? <laughs> Well, that's a good question, and I have to say that both uh, negotiating teams have been very good about maintaining discipline. Uh, I would like nothing more than to see the documents and do a forensic on, on, on those documents, but uh, so I don't really know the answer to your question. And I hear different things from different negotiators, uh, to be honest. Uh, uh, I think that the Chinese uh, are absolutely recognize the importance in China's own domestic interest to move forward on opening and reform, regardless of the bilateral negotiations. So that's a question of pacing. It's a question of cadence. It's a question of when and under the modalities. Is Donald Trump going to take credit for that? Well, forget it then. You know, uh, is, will this be done in Chinese terms? Well, then they'll move ahead with it. Um, uh, so therein lies uh, the difficulty. Uh, on, so I don't really have a detailed answer uh, for you on SOE's uh, subsidies. But what I would say uh, is that the Chinese are not against living up to the WTO commitments in a, a more robust manner, uh, what I would call the shorthand, but OECD standard uh, WTO compliance, as opposed to 
developed, developing economy status, OEC, uh, uh, WTO compliance. Those are two very different things. Uh, Korea just said that it would uh, apply the WTO in accordance to OECD standards. So it's not asking China to drop OECD status. That's an ideological problem. China won't do that. But China could implement the WTO in accordance to OECD standards. That's a separate issue. And China needs to do that as soon as possible. And I think that that's where the sweet spot is. That's where I think an agreement lies. I hope. Please. So in the 19th century, it was the Americans who were freely taking technology from Europe and very glad not to pay for it, whatever they could avoid that. And also uh, very eager to uh, grab talent from Germany or England to put in their universities and in industry and to develop chemistry and so forth. And so in a way, in a way China's just doing now what we did before. Um, and I think if, uh, if anybody in the 19th century took a long-term view, they would have realized that it was inevitable that the United States would be you know, raised to a level technically that was equal to Germany or equal to England. So putting aside the question of you know, the, the, the ethics of each stolen trade secret or trade secret deal, isn't it clear that in the long run that the technology level of China, I don't know whether it's 20 years or 30 years, has to become equal to that of Europe and equal to the United States. And basically, the, the trying to stop that is trying to stop the tides. It's just not going to happen. Well, it's a really good question uh, because uh, it, it raises, while not explicitly, implicitly, a, a lot of cultural issues. And I think that uh, we must be very respectful of Chinese engineers, absolutely. But I think that uh, China uh, also has an R&D environment that's actually quite corrupt. Uh, and there's a lot of funny business that happens in Chinese laboratories, and I, I doubt any of our Chinese friends would disagree with that. Uh, uh, there's uh, the patent, um, uh, excessive patent. Uh, there's a, a million stories. Um, so, uh, but generally, uh, I would agree that convergence is the good thing. Convergence should be the goal. Convergence is the objective. But can you have convergence with a highly technological, nationalistic, techno-nationalism player that's as large as China, um, where foreign companies are kept out, uh, where foreign companies are not treated equally. So if you go into any American high-tech company, right, any, anyone, you have uh, Brazilians and Israelis and Swedes and Nigerians, and it's a lovely melange, right? It's just so beautiful. Uh, to me, it's beautiful. I love diversity. But if you go to a Chinese company, there's a lot of Chinese. This is not diverse. There, it's very difficult for Chinese to play equally on the global, in the global ec ecosystem. So I really worry. Uh, the Great Wall of China, the Internet Wall of China, is a case in a study. Is, now, that really hurts Chinese researchers. 
Um, and what China doesn't want is to become a, a Galapagos Island, a term stolen from Japan, right? Where they had such a weird technology ecosystem that the technology products couldn't mate with other species outside of China, uh, leading to a lot of uh, evolutionary dead ends, right? That's what happened in Japan. We don't want the same to happen in China. But if that is to be the case, then China has to do a much better job at welcoming foreign countries, protecting foreigners' intellectual property rights, uh, lighten up on the forced technology transfer, improve, make subsidies available globally, or keep them to really research and not development, and be a better player in the global ecosystem. And the subjects covered under the current 301 negotiations are exactly those subjects. And that's why I'm vaguely optimistic that we're not going to get a whole loaf. You know, we're not going to get to nirvana, but we're going to get, we're going to advance this, and then we're going to have ongoing negotiations to not get us to nirvana, but to get us closer and closer uh, to convergence. And if not, we ha we're going to have two systems, global systems, and that hurts everyone and benefits a few people. <laughs> uh, please. Um, well, thank you so much for the wonderful uh, talk today. I've been in the trenches, so to speak, in China for many years, and it's just really uh, nice to hear you succinctly summarize really the crux of what is going on. I have two questions. Um, one is, in what seems to be the direction that we're heading in, which is the decoupling, or as you just mentioned, sort of two global systems, um, that direction that we're heading in, how do we undo and is it even possible to undo the technology transfers that have already happened to this point? Um, specifically in terms of manufacturing and all of the manufacturing expertise that already exists in China. Um, so computer chips, roll-to-roll, um, -roll, all of those manufacturing expertise already exist in China. And as many may know, a lot of the technology companies that are in China, they're hezi, they have to have a cooperation. It's not a wholly, for, wholly owned foreign enterprise for the technology companies in China. And so... What's happening right now is the U.S. is realizing about you know what's happening with the technology transfer and trying to back out of it. Um, Google announced uh, you know some of the production moving to Vietnam and Thailand, but first of all, some of that has already happened. Um, so can that be undone? And secondly, I mean, in the future, what's the answer for for that? I mean, I think you you pointed out that there isn't a good answer, yeah. um, but specifically in in um, the energy sector, which is a sector that we need to come together for, in terms of technology, in terms of the globalization of the market, um, and. For a case that I'm working on right now, I know very specifically that a lot of the energy sector, um, energy storage technology, it's like you mentioned, duplicate use for Department of Defense. And 
there is such a strong desire to come together and work together, and yet, how do we fill the, the gap? How, how do we overcome the obstacle? I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> and I know, I know that you probably don't either, but, and those are two really loaded questions, but they're really, really, I think, at the, the foundation of where the problem is. So I was wondering well, what, what you thought about that. Let, let me try and, and, and reply to that. Um, <clears throat> manufacturing technology is changing at warp speed. And um, uh, container traffic is way down. I had dinner with the port people in Boston, and they're suffering because container traffic globally is way down because it's becoming uh, additive manufacturing. It's making it much easier to manufacture closer to the consumer. And that's true around the world. Uh, and so this is not a zero-sum game. It's a moving, it's moving target, very rapidly moving target, with productivity increasing at warp speed. Um, and, uh, and Chinese uh, know that. The Chinese are going to rely on total factor productivity as uh, a way to increase their GDP in the future because the Chinese workforce is declining, right? Um, so I don't worry that much uh, because manufacturing is moving very quickly. I do worry that US, the U.S. will lose an advantage in manufacturing, and we've got to keep on top of that. But that's on us uh, to, to, to do that. And the Chinese are moving ahead very quickly on robotics. The Chinese have more robots employed than anybody else on Earth. On the national security side, I think that the key issue is how do you define national security? And uh, and that's a really, really hard thing. So what I will argue, uh, being the guy, I'm the pro-engagement guy, um, so what I will argue is let's define national security as narrowly as possible. Biological weapons, bad. Um, uh, I'm forced to say that uh, uh, telephony is problematic. Uh, but we got to keep as much, uh, 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 if we are to maintain the global innovation ecosystem, we have to keep as much of the other technology out of the national security realm. Uh, there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C.'s walking around with buckets of paint and big old paintbrushes who are happy to paint you national security. You didn't know that you were national security before, but you could become national security. I've, I've testified on the Hill that uh, against uh, the use, the calling of APIs or uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients, chemical imports coming into the US. Uh, some people want to classify that as high technology and a risk. And that's, what are you gonna do? Move it to India? Is that gonna be cheaper or, or, cheaper or, or cleaner or better? Give me a break. Um, uh, so uh, we have to keep Zhongming uh, in Chinese, you know, the proper names. Uh, keep national security, national security. A tall wall around a narrow garden, not a tripwire uh, around the whole farm. And if it's a tripwire around the whole farm, boy, are we going to suffer? Are we going to suffer? We have time for about just two more questions, and I want to ask them quickly, and then and then let Craig respond to both of them. So first, Mark. Oh, quick, thank you very much for your thoughtful remarks. Um, the problem I want to pose is something I observe from talking to thinkers in Beijing. Uh, I'm convinced that folks in Beijing really don't think the world is going to move towards two systems no matter what they do. 
because the technology makes it too difficult. And we're, if, to the extent we have these walls, they're really around physical elements and the world is increasingly moving towards data. And at best, you can't create a wall, you can create a membrane. They have that, we might have a membrane, but so what? So in that type of world, they have then analyzed, right? The, even the US, Europe, and Japan got together and came up with a new set of rules. There's nothing they can do to force us to take on these rules. So we can do what we want until we achieve some level of economic autarky and until the rest of the world is enmeshed within us. And so in reaction to that, right, um, do you, I guess the question is, do you think that's correct? And if you don't think that's correct, right, it really means Europe, Japan, and America working together will either have to offer a bucket of carrots what should those carrots be? We clearly know what they are from China, right? More access to your investment markets, uh, more integration into your uh, financial systems, uh, treatment as a market economy and so forth. What would you put into that basket of carrots, right? Or Europe, Japan, and America together would have to have some set of sticks, which if not tariffs, what would those sticks be? But if not, then as long as you believe the Chinese assessment to be correct, I think Beijing's playbook is basically let them do what they want. When we're ready, we'll have the rest of the world come onto our terms. That's the way China's always conducted, uh, we know historically, right? It's trade relations <coughs> going all the way back, right, to the Tang Dynasty and so forth. So I, I just wanted to ask, you know, do you think this assessment in Beijing is correct? And, you know, what should be, if not, what should be in the, that set of baskets or in that set of sticks? Yeah, um, well, yeah it's a wonderful question, and I, I, I don't know the answer. I, I can't see the future. But what I do see is uh, that China has incredibly overreached with the Belt and Road. Most of the Chinese that I know personally tell me that they hate the Belt and Road because it's a waste of their taxpayer money uh, for uh, where it should be used in China. Uh, and uh, I think that this is a similar sort of uh, thing. Now, uh, the Chinese uh, Huawei might be able to dominate Africa, but will they be paid? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect that they'll be able to dominate Africa, but they won't be paid. Look at uh, Pakistan. Uh, there's $70 billion worth of investments in Belt and Road in Pakistan. How realistic is it to get that China will get a dollar back out of that? So I see China having overextended, and both Xi Jinping and Donald Trump are both overextended. They're both overconfident, and that's the worst possible negotiating um, um, milieu. Um, so um, I do think uh, that um, clearly uh, your definitions of national security are, are the sticks, right? Uh, and if you define semiconductors as national security, which you can make a very good argument for, then China is going to be pretty far behind and is not going to be able to catch up and grave damage uh, could be done there. But that would require an uh, alliance, uh, a COCOM type, type effort. Uh, and is that a viable scenario? Are the Japanese and the Dutch and, and the, the British uh, and the Germans going to come alongside? How about the Israelis? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, so, uh, at least in my view, um, uh, the narrow definition of uh, um, 
of national security and the broad definition of WTO compliance and uh, demanding uh, that the China, Chinese give us the WTO rights which we negotiated uh, is uh, the appropriate uh, stance. And I know that that's not a satisfactory answer. Um, uh, and I know uh, that, uh, that uh, in this global economy, which is changing so quickly uh, and so rapidly, uh, uh, companies are going to come out with advantages that we can't even imagine today. And uh, there's going to be an individualistic reason to coordinate with China, but a nationalist reason not to coordinate with China. And how that's going to work out is uh, very difficult to say. I do think uh, that the health of Silicon Valley and American tech is like critically important and we need th to answer that question. What are the rules of the road for cooperation? What are the rules of the road uh, for competition? And most importantly, how do you enforce those rules? And uh, uh, that's why I came to Harvard, by the way, to ask you that. Uh, and I'd love it if you could send me an email with that response. And you'll be famous forever if you could uh, if you could help me on that. Meg, can you uh, put some graduate students on that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're here. They're on it. Um, I think with that, we will thank Craig. This has been incredibly illuminating, and um, and and we're grateful to you and to all of you for coming. So thank you, Craig. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.